0: This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is Episode 76. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started with the episode today, I'd like to remind you that if you like this podcast, please share it on social media. Also, go out and like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and like my YouTube page. And if you want a free ebook and a free audiobook, head on over to my website, brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook of Forgotten Founders and a free audiobook read by yours truly, of Forgotten Founders. So, uh, check that out, get those things, and again, help me out by spreading the word about this podcast. Okay, so the topic for today is something that's kind of been in the news recently. Um, It has to deal with Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. And so this particular benchmark that we have, where we measure a president's success by what he does in 100 days, is completely ridiculous. So uh, Donald Trump actually put out a tweet uh, just before the 100 days was up, and he said, you know, Hundred days—it's a—it's a silly—I'm paraphrasing here—it's a silly, uh, I'm here. it's a silly uh, measurement about a president's success. But he's done all these things, and of course, Twitter then piled on. Well, uh, if you were actually a good president or a good man compared to these guys, these presidents actually did uh, great things in their first hundred days. But of course, you're a worthless buffoon, so you don't deserve—you uh, know—to be called even a, a a mediocre president. But these guys—if you were doing a good job—you would have gone in here, and just. Change the world in 100 days. And so, you know, this is the problem that we have with the American executive. And it's actually why uh, one of the reasons why I wrote uh, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America and four who Tried to Save Her, because we have this image of the executive branch as being an elected monarch. And essentially, that's what people want. If Donald Trump came into office in 100 days and entirely rewrote the um, American tax code, or uh, you know, rewrote healthcare legislation, or uh, ruled by decree. I guess people would be happy with that, maybe in uh, you know some to some extent, his own supporters. And of course, then there would be the outcry from the other side that this guy's acting like a dictator, or uh, you know, a fascist, totalitarian, or something like that. But regardless. Uh, the left were usually the ones who were piling on and saying, well, I mean, if you were a good guy, you know, these these guys were great presidents, you're just an awful guy. So let's talk about this idea of the first hundred days. Where in the heck does this come from? And should we even have this type of benchmark for the American executive? Well, first of all, uh, up until 1933, no one talked about the first hundred days in office. And we have to remember that the president, constitutionally, cannot do most of what we expect the president to do in office today. So when you look at, for example, um, starting with the Washington administration forward, no one expected the president to come in and revolutionize the office in 100 days. In fact, what they wanted was for the president to come in and essentially execute the laws of Congress. Now, this didn't mean the president didn't make recommendations. The president did. The inaugural address often served as a way for the president to say, "These are the kind of things I want to see when I'm uh, after I'm sworn in, or now that I'm sworn in, these are the things I want to see." But the president was not legislator in chief. The president was not gardener in chief. The president was not healthcare CEO in chief. The president was not uh, take your pick in you know, in chief. Uh, this is what we want the president to do today, and that all goes back to that wonderful president who uh, transformed the executive branch. Franklin Roosevelt. Of course, a man considered to be one of the greatest presidents in American history, I think one of the worst presidents in American history, because he completely violated the Constitution over and over and over again. Now, one note about that, and one note about what I say about the executive branch and how the uh, the president has gone completely off the rails t- according to the original Constitution. What does that original Constitution mean? I read a review the other day of my nine presidents book by a lawyer out in California, and uh, the first of all nobody's read this thing, so I'm not going to tell you where I saw it or who the lawyer is because I don't want him to get any uh, kind of, uh, you know, publicity off of his stupid review. But he he criticized me because he said that one of the things that I do is I have uh, originalists have idolatry toward the Constitution as written. It's idolatry, he said. That's originalism. Well, this guy obviously doesn't know what originalism is. It's not idolatry towards the Constitution as written. It's an understanding of the Constitution as ratified. And so, when you look at the Constitution as ratified, and you look at what the proponents of the document said, the friends of the Constitution about the executive branch, the legislative branch, take your pick, judicial branch, you would find that the things that the, con- that the Congress, the President, the Supreme Court, does today are completely unconstitutional according to that Constitution as ratified. How they promised the Constitution would be interpreted once it was ratified by the states in 1788. What this guy is saying is that I'm a textualist. Now textualism produces problems uh, because that's the idea that you just simply read the document you read the words and you say well this is what the words mean. And, of course, he would say, well, I'm reading it from an 18th century perspective, and words change over time. Well, textualism can actually open the door to that. I could say that commerce meant this in the 18th century, but now commerce means that in the 21st century. Because, his, in his uh, opinion, uh, you know, the framers had no idea about industrialization or what commerce would turn into in the 19th century and then the 20th century. So that you can't just read commerce and say, this is commerce. Well, that's not, what I, that's not what originalists do. We say, okay, uh, this is what the originalists said, or this is what the Friends of the Constitution said the powers of Congress would be under that particular clause in the Constitution. That doesn't change. It doesn't matter what commerce means, if you have a steam engine or not. It only matters what the Friends of the Document said, the Constitution, the Congress would be able to do under the Constitution, or the Executive Branch would be able to do under the Constitution. That's all that matters. Uh, and not just that, uh, this idea that, that originalists believe that somehow the Constitution is static, the meaning of the words is static, really misses the point. <clears throat> Again, the idea of a written constitution, and this is something originalists would say, the idea of original, of, of, a, of a written constitution is in contrast to the British model of an unwritten constitution. A written constitution is there to contain the powers of government. You codify the powers. You write them down. These are the only powers that the government has, and of course those powers, according to the Constitution, are delegated or granted. And so who's doing the granting? Well, the states, the people of the states, are granting these powers, and they are delegated, meaning they are confined to the listed enumerated powers, and then those enumerated powers were explained by the friends of the document, including nationalists like James Wilson, who said, look, if it doesn't say we can do it, we can't do it. And so uh, this is the key to originalism. It's not looking at the words and saying, well, this is what they said in the 18th, this is what the word meant in the 18th century, and this is what we said it meant in the 19th century through Supreme Court decision, this is what we said it meant in the 20th century through Supreme Court decision, and that's what this idiot did in his review. So, uh, again, going back to that idea of originalism, that's what the book is based on, how the executive branch was sold to the people of the state's in 1787 and 1788. And according to that constitution, well then, what we have is an executive branch that's completely off the rails. So, we get to 1933, and Franklin Roosevelt becomes president. And he promises a new deal for America. And of course, what he says in his inaugural address is that he's going to treat the situation like he would an emergency or a wartime situation. And he says, simply... I'm going to ask Congress to act, but if Congress won't act, then I will act unilaterally. Now, the presidents had exceeded their powers before. We had that, of course, under Woodrow Wilson. We had it under Teddy Roosevelt. We had it under Abraham Lincoln. We had it under Andrew Jackson. And even we had it under George Washington. But no one had ever said, look, if the Congress won't act, I will. Now, Teddy Roosevelt had said that I'm going to act and then we'll let the Congress debate what I did. But Franklin Roosevelt was coming out and blatantly saying, I'm going to act essentially as a dictator at this point, And I'm going to do it quickly because we have a national emergency. So he promised action in the first hundred days in office. So essentially what we're saying when you say, you know what, what are you going to do in the first hundred days? We're asking a president, are you going to be a good dictator like all the other presidents before you? in the last half of the 20th century, because that's what we think the president should do. So this entire benchmark of 100 days is ridiculous. And so let's think about what Franklin Roosevelt did in those first 100 days. Number one, we got the New Deal. In fact, at one point, it's rumored, and I think John Flynn wrote about this, it's rumored that the Congress actually passed a rolled-up newspaper in lieu of a bill because the bill hadn't been written yet by the White House And so they just said, look, we're going to pass this newspaper because we think the bill's coming down. We know the bill's going to be in it, and so we're just going to pass this rolled-up newspaper instead. We can't even read the bill yet. We can't can't do it. So uh, the Congress passed a rolled-up newspaper. That's what was happening in the first 100 days. Do we really want that from our government today? Do we really want the Congress, to act on promises, or do we want bills that actually have meat and substance to them that are uh, we can read and see what they're going to do? This is the whole problem we have with Obamacare. you got to pass the bill to see what's in the bill. Well, nobody wants that anymore. Of course, the Republicans in Congress were basically saying the same thing with their uh, American uh, Care Act or American Health Care Act, whatever they called it. Uh, and so you had to pass the bill to see what's in the bill. I mean, that's... That's ridiculous. And, of course, the Trump administration got on board with that bill. we got to do this. So this idea that somehow the president has to go out and start legislating by decree, by saying, I'm going to write legislation, Congress is going to pass this legislation. If they don't do it, uh, you know there's going to be major problems here. I mean, we don't want that from the president. And, of course, in the New Deal, you had things like the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was completely unconstitutional, which essentially nationalized the agricultural sector of the United States. It provided uh, a, a, ability, the ability of the general government to tell people how many hogs they could have and what kind of food they could produce. And, uh, you know, the people had to slaughter hogs and p- uh, plow under crops. Uh, they set price floors and ceilings. I mean, this stuff was ridiculous. But of course, that's what we want in 100 days. Or how about the Uh, the NIRA, the National Industrial Recovery Act, which did the same thing for the entire industrial sector of the American economy. Oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell you what you can and can't produce. We're going to provide subsidies and price floors and ceilings. Uh, So is this what we want out of our executive branch? Do we want the executive branch to go in and nationalize the entire industrial or agricultural section of the United States? Because that's what we got. We also had legislation, of course, that put people to work sweeping parks and cleaning up parks so that they could have a job. Is that what we want? Do we want the general government going in and saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make, uh, we're going to have the president be labor boss in chief? Uh, it also created the Civilian Conservation Corps. So now people are, are uh, civilians are essentially mustered into service like they would be in the military and they go out and they, uh, you know, clear parks and, and uh, create walking trails and clear bat dung and uh, build golf courses and public pools. I mean, is this what we want? We want the, uh, the president to be pool boy in chief? But this is what we're asking when you say the president has to go in in 100 days and be this uh, great transform transformational figure. And that's how we, we ask this question of every president. What are you going to do in the first 100 days? A, a real constitutional president says, say, you know what? In the first 100 days, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to recommend some measures to Congress, and I'm going to let Congress debate these things. And if they send me a good bill that's constitutional, I'll sign it. If they don't, I'll veto it. I will. Uh, now, the president could uh, write executive orders that, that revoke unconstitutional executive orders. That would be good in the first hundred days. That would be something worthwhile. Uh, the president, of course, is constitutionally responsible for foreign policy, not unilaterally, but to set the tone. And I think Trump has done that, whether you agree with it or not. Uh, Trump has set the tone. I think he's gone back on his promises in a lot of ways, but still, he's setting the tone in foreign policy, and that's completely constitutional. Now uh, the president can go out and uh, with his uh, administration, negotiate trade deals, and then those deals have to be put before Congress, the Senate in particular, and those treaties have to be uh, ratified. And I think that um, that's something the President can do in the first 100 days, or in the first four, in the first year, or first two years, or in four years. But there should be no pressure to do things that are completely unconstitutional. And that's what people want. And, of course, we're looking at uh, problems. I mean, everyone wants tax reform because the tax code is messed up. Taxes are too high in the United States. And so we want taxes to be brought down. But, of course, that's the job of the House of Representatives. So put the pressure on the House. The president shouldn't have to come up with a tax plan. Where's the Congress's tax plan? I remember uh, there, there's a great uh, quote by John C. Calhoun. He said, you know what, the real problem, and I'm going to paraphrase, but the real problem with the executive branch is not the executive branch, it's the legislative branch. Because what the legislative branch has continually done is punt their responsibility and give the executive unconstitutional powers. The, the Congress cannot enlarge the powers of the presidency by legislation, and they've been continually doing it for nearly 200 years. That's is illegal. And so in that way, I mean, I think Calhoun was right. So when you, when you point fingers at the executive branch, and I think you can because we've had executives that have acted like dictators or essentially elected monarchs, and some of the things they've done are completely unconstitutional. But a lot of the times, the, the legislative branch is behind this, this fiasco because they do things, they pass legislation that gives the president tremendous amounts of power that they shouldn't have. So the pressure should be on the legislative branch about the tax code, and then, of course, the pressure should be on the legislative branch about fixing health care, not the president. I mean, he says, "Look, I want health care fixed." So the the legislative branch has got to do it. The problem is we have poor leadership in the legislative branch. Now, the other issue here, of course, is that if the president did act constitutionally, it wouldn't really matter who's the president when it comes to domestic policy. Foreign policy it would, but not domestic policy. And in a lot of ways, if the states would just grow a backbone, uh, a lot of these issues that we have would not be even debated in the chambers of the U.S. Congress. Now, I just read this morning that California has passed a bill that would provide single-payer health insurance for the entire state of California. Anyone who's a California resident would get single-payer health care. And of course, this is seeming to be, you know, a, a major, uh, you know, major news story because, <gasps> oh my gosh, this is the first step to socialized medicine in the United States. No, it's not. California can do this constitutionally. We've already seen Romney Care in Massachusetts. This isn't a problem if California wants to stupidly go on in this in this direction. Because even the article itself says, "I don't know how California is going to pay for it." Nobody knows how California is going to pay for it. If California wants to go bankrupt doing this, they can. The, the problem with that, of course, is that they shouldn't expect the rest of the United States to bail them out when they are bankrupt. But still, California can constitutionally pass this type of legislation. If, if the left wants single payer, if they want a national health insurance program, well, you don't have to do it at the federal government. All you have to do is just do it in your state. The issue, of course, and, and hey, if people want that, then they can move to California, I mean, there you go. Uh, anyone that wants single-payer health can just say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to move to California. I'm going to go work there. I'm going to get on the California welfare system, and I'm going to go live in California, and I'm going to leave these red states behind, these evil red states where they don't have this kind of thing. Great. Uh, this is what the – you can vote with your feet. This is the whole idea of federalism. Think locally. Act locally. California since the election has been thinking locally and acting locally I mean that's stupendous that's, that's that is a tremendous stupendous development. This is what should have been happening the entire time and taking the pressure off the US Congress with a one-size-fits-all policy that isn't ever going to work. I think it's it's remarkable that California has taken this step and of course they're also talking about secession, which if California wanted to, I mean, Uh, There's nothing stopping them, legally, in my estimation, from leaving the union, if they wanted to leave the union. Now, would that happen? Probably not. But I think if there was ever some talk of decentralization at that step, where decentralization became secession, it would have to come from a leftist state, like California or Vermont or something like that. But regardless, here we have... A a fine situation where California, of course, we had the sanctuary cities issue and think locally, act locally. But the president has no control over these things and shouldn't. We should never consider the president to be the dictator in chief and 100 days to come in and massively change the entire federal uh, government and make it the federal government of Donald Trump or Barack Obama or, you know, uh, George W. Bush or, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, whoever. We shouldn't we shouldn't want that. In fact, what should happen? We should follow Trump's lead and say this is a ridiculous benchmark. He was a hundred percent correct about that. And I just heard on the radio. Well, uh, pa- Paul Ryan saying, "What well, we're going to do it in the first two hundred days?" Well, who cares? You do it. Pass a good bill that's constitutional and does what you what you are constitutionally obligated to do, which is craft legislation that deals with U.S. taxes, the tax code, or uh, you know, whatever legislative agenda you think that you can constitutionally do, which health care is not one of those. But regardless, we've gotten to that point where everyone thinks it is. Uh, and then pass the bill and let the president sign it or not. You know, the president wading into the legislative arena was uh, something that uh, happened in the in the early federal period. You know, Jefferson was a little bit more involved in the legislative arena than, say, either, Uh, John Adams or George Washington. But for the most part, presidents uh, kept a very hands-off approach to that process until the uh, late 19th century into the 20th century. Uh, So uh, really in the 20th century is when this really kicked up uh, and you had Woodrow Wilson acting as prime minister. Um, So uh, this whole idea of a president coming in the first 100 days Uh, in being uh, something that he's not, is born out of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. And this is something that if you're on the right or a libertarian or someone that believes in limited government, you should never hold the president to that benchmark. You should never agree with that position. Well, what's the president going to do in the first 100 days? Who cares? Who cares? In fact, if we were following the Constitution as ratified, the original Constitution, we would never ask that question because that would be illegal for the president to do these things. This is how it was promised by the friends of the document when the Constitution was going through ratification. And that's the Constitution we should follow, not the one we think that the founding generation wanted or that the Supreme Court has said we have, or, you know, etc. Take your pick, whatever it is. That's not the Constitution we should hold the president to or, or accountable to. That's the unwritten model that Franklin Roosevelt essentially crafted during the New Deal. And then, of course, we had the second Bill of Rights, which was one of his last speeches uh, in 1945 before he died. And, of course, that became the entire talking points for the modern left. And we base what we think we should be doing off of those talking points at the general, for the general government. So I'm glad to see that Donald Trump actually said this is stupid to rate somebody on this ridiculous benchmark of 100 days. Ridiculous. Uh, in that he actually said this and, and, and called the left media out, the leftist media, because this is the media that pushes that narrative most of the time, because they're a bunch of nincompoops anyways, who don't understand American history and uh, have little conception of uh, the executive branch and, and under the Constitution as ratified. So next time your friends tell you, well, I don't know what Donald Trump has done in 100 days, say so I don't really care what he does in 100 days. We don't want him. To be a transformational figure in a hundred days—that's not the executive branch, as ratified in the original Constitution. That's not what we want, because if you're saying that, you're asking for an elected monarch or a dictator in chief. And I think that overall, if one thing we could get out of the uh, out of the current political process is that if all Americans, left and right, could understand the president has limited. Power. There's not much in in Article II of the Constitution. I think we would go a long way to repairing the American political process. If we stop looking to the president on both sides to solve every problem under the sun, uh, we could actually do things like California's doing and saying, you know what, forget the general government. We're going to pass single-payer health care in the state of California. And the other states could say, you know what, forget the general government. We're going to pass X, Y, and Z legislation here to make the lives of our citizens better in our state based on the community, the political community we want to live in. That is, think locally, act locally, and this is why the first 100 days is a ridiculous benchmark. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.